Genesis chapter 15. You've been reading in the headlines, I'm sure, have seen on the news the $50 billion massive, largest ever Ponzi scheme perpetrated by the Wall Street wizard Bernie Madoff. Prosecutors have said $50 billion, poof, it's gone. Let me put that in perspective, if I may, this morning. If you spent $1,000 a day since the days of Christ, you would not have spent $1 billion. $50 billion. It represents life investments for some people. It's uh, 13,000 people are on the client list. It's a veritable who's who from Steven Spielberg to Alex Rodriguez, who's in the news for different reasons lately. From the owner of the New York Mets all the way down to people that you and I would never have heard of. Charities and philanthropic organizations now are on life support. And uh, the paper the other day said that some charities are even closing their doors because they had invested all of their money based on Bernie Madoff's promises and his alleged track record. We don't know what we're going to read in the paper tomorrow. We don't know what's going to be on the breaking news tonight at 6 and at 10, but we do know who holds our tomorrows firmly and securely in the palm of his hand. And so in preparation for the Lord's table this morning, in Genesis chapter 15, I just want to take a few minutes and remind us of God's grace that often shows up in very unfamiliar places. Would you follow with me as we begin in God's inspired and therefore infallible and errant word, In verse 1, and we're going to read the entire chapter. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said in verse 3, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God, in verse 5, brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In verse 7, God said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I'm to possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And they brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 
And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus far the word of God. This is a rather lengthy text. It's a rather interesting text, but there's just a couple of observations that I want to make this morning and all in preparation to come to the Lord's table. First of all, you notice in the opening verses, verses 1 through 6, how God promises us by grace more than we could ever accomplish in our own effort, in our own strength, in our own willpower. I mean, consider God's promises to Abram. He promises him a son, an heir. Literally, the Hebrew means a son from your own loins, a son that you and Sarah shall have together. He promises him descendants that are more numerous than the stars on a starlit, luminous night. He says as he brings him outside of the tent, you see the stars, if you can count them, you'll begin to gather some idea of the descendants that I'm going to give you. And then he tells this aging, childless man who's living and dwelling and wandering in a tent in a foreign land. He says, I'm going to give you this land. And then he gives him the geographical boundaries of the extent of this land. Hundreds of thousands of square miles. It's going to be yours and it's going to belong to your descendants. That would take nothing less than the omnipotent grace of God to bring this to pass. I mean, consider Abram. Abram's name at this point means exalted father. Can you imagine a caravan coming by and someone stopping for a glass of goat's milk or some other form of refreshment? And they say, excuse me, buddy, uh, what's your name? And he says, Abram, which they would have understood means exalted father. Well, the natural question then is, how many children do you have? And Abram would have taken a deep breath and said, none. He's about 75 years of age at this point. And so the chances of Abram having one son, let alone numerous descendants, is practically nil at this point. No children, no descendants. Can you imagine telling a man that's living in a tent, in an RV park, so to speak, wandering around in this uh, this great land of spacious boundaries that you're going to own and possess this land? Simply not possible. And there's no way that Abram left to his own unaided efforts would ever be able to accomplish all that God had promised him. And you won't find any reason for this kind of grace in Abram. Because if you found reasons for grace in Abram, it wouldn't be grace. I mean, consider Abram the man for just a moment. God sovereignly called him by the election of grace. From Ur the Chaldees, as the text says, and this was a land that was noted for occultic and pagan practices. And later on in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 8, and in, actually in the Old Testament too, in Joshua 24, and then uh, it's Acts uh, 7, as Stephen's recounting the history of Israel, Abram's going to be referred to as an idolater. He wasn't seeking the Lord. 
He was a man with a deep pagan background who had given himself to idolatry when the grace of God found him. And so here he is, childless, an old man, an aging man, wandering around in this land in a tent, and God makes extraordinarily great promises that are only possible because of the grace of God. You won't find any reason in Abraham for that kind of grace. I mean, consider from this point on something about um, Abram's character. In chapter um, in chapter 13, when he goes down into Egypt because there's a famine in this land that the Lord led him to, he abandons his wife out of self-preservation. You would think he would have learned his lesson with the Lord's intervention, but a little bit later in Genesis chapter 20, years later actually, Abram would abandon his wife a second time in a strange land to preserve his own life. Gentlemen, can you imagine abandoning, disowning your wives over to another man to save your own life? This is Abram. Could you imagine about lying about that relationship twice? This is Abram. Can you imagine consenting to your to your wife's suggestion that you go into another woman in order to have this child that God promised because you're growing impatient and there's been a long delay. But in chapter 16, that's exactly what Abram would do. Can you imagine laughing in God's face in chapter 18 when he promises this child and your response is laughter? Well, I'd suggest to you today that you won't find any reason for God's grace If you look at Abram, and I would suggest to us as well that as we come to the table of the Lord this Lord's Day morning, you won't find any reason why you can come to this table if you look inward. You'll only find reasons why you've been invited into the fellowship of the triune God if you consider nothing other than the goodness of God and the grace of God as it's given to you in Christ. Some years ago now... Living in Fort Myers, one of my favorite eating places there was a place called First Watch. If you've ever been to St. Louis, they have one there as well. And it was a frequent lunch dinner date, a lunch date for Melinda and me on Fridays. We would often go there for a lengthy lunch together. And when I first met Dr. Young in uh, December of 2005 now, we had breakfast there. In fact, we not only had breakfast that day, we had lunch that day. And we had dinner together that day, not all in the same place. Uh, but my first meal with Dr. And this is a quick aside. Susie's here, um, and I don't mind her hearing this. Quick aside, you, you can totally believe this about our pastor. Our very first meal together, and um, I had ordered an egg white omelet, some English muffins, and, and something else. And I didn't quite finish. And Dr. Young pulls my plate over and says, you're not going to eat all of that? <laughs> And I said, no, you're welcome to it, as he had the first bite in his mouth. But after um, having lunch one day at First Watch, checking out on my way out, the cashier said inadvertently to, to me and someone else there, she said, well, it's like my mom always said, God helps those who helps themselves. And I said, oh, ma'am, on the contrary, God helps those who can't help themselves. And that's called grace. And so these promises come to an aging man. And they come to a man who owned nothing and is living in a tent. And they stagger the imagination. 
And God is going to do all of that and more out of the richness of His grace. You think about your own life this morning. God has given you by grace what you could never earn, never achieve, never supply by your own efforts. He's given you forgiveness. He's given you the righteousness of His Son. He's given you an inheritance that cannot be quantified or estimated because it is of eternal importance and value. He's given you the hope and promise of living hope, First Peter says, that's founded upon the resurrection of Christ, an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that's kept in store in heaven. He's given all of that and he's given it by grace. And here's the tangible proof this morning of God's grace to us as we come to the table. He brings us from, from death to life. He brings us from unbelief to faith. He enables our repentance. He grants forgiveness and acceptance. He gives fruit and gifts out of our fruitful endeavor in His name. He works and wills in us. And it's all of His grace, not because of anything found in us or certainly not because of our efforts. Secondly, this text guarantees us grace. God guarantees us grace. And he secures his promise of grace in a binding covenant. Uh, The strange ceremony that's envisioned and recorded for us in Genesis 15 is the securing of those promises to Abraham. Abraham asked the question, and it's not really founded on unbelief, but I mean, you've got to realize here's a 75-year-old, maybe older man who's saying, how am I going to have a son? How am I going to have descendants as numerous or more numerous than the stars of the sky? And Have you seen what I live in? How am I going to own and possess all of this land? How's this going to happen? And God has this response. He says, bring me some animals. And Abraham responded and he brought a goat and a cow and a lamb and two birds, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And they're separated and those halves are laid side by side. It was a ceremony that Abraham would have been familiar with. And normally there would have been two people passing between those severed animals. Because in passing between those two animals, both parties are binding themselves to the covenant obligations. And they're invoking curses upon themselves if they do not fulfill their covenant promises and obligations. But here's the phenomenal thing, guys. There's only one who passes between those severed animals that day. And it wasn't Abraham because Abraham could not keep the covenant obligations. This is a one-sided arrangement. This is God stooping. This is God saying to Abraham, you sit on the sidelines and you watch me pass between these animals because I will assume full responsibility and guarantee all that I've promised you. I will do it in and of myself because I don't need your help. And so only one presence passes between those animals. I recently read in the paper where they've already developed something called the Obama meter. How sad that we jump on our leaders so early, but the Obama meter has been developed to track how well our president fulfills 
his 510 campaign promises that some organization has counted and is now watching to see how well he fulfills them. Can you imagine living under that kind of scrutiny and pressure? New York Times on Friday carried a a piece in their front page section of plane crash survivors and the promises they make. And they cited an example of uh, the recent heroic landing to whom all the credit and glory goes to God, in my opinion. But uh, they cited the heroic landing, the amazing landing in the Hudson, and the kinds of things that people promise themselves and others after they survive something like that. And they went back to other plane crashes where there have been survivors. There was an example of, um, of a horrific plane crash three years ago in Denver. And they went back and interviewed those survivors. And what they discovered is this, that in those extraordinary moments when we face death and we make promises to ourselves and others, we still have trouble keeping them. We do not fare so well in keeping our promises to other people and to ourselves. Recently, um, David William Early heard the gavel slam down on 19 years of unfulfilled and broken promises regarding his child support. For 19 years, he had promised to support his four children. And 19 years later, 19 years of unfulfilled, unkept, and unbroken, or rather broken promises, he finds himself behind bars facing five years on a felony count of child support evasion. We're accustomed to people breaking promises. It's the kind of world we live in. We're well-intentioned. Many of us, if not all of us, are well-intentioned in our own promises. But circumstances developed and situations change. And we find that we cannot fulfill all that we've promised. And that's not the case with our God. Notice in the text in verses 13 through 16, God says, no for certain, Abram, no for certain. In Hebrew, it's a, a very intense statement. If I could paraphrase it, it would be something like this. Abraham, you can bank on what I'm telling you. I guarantee it. And then to give him the visual demonstration of how certain this is, only one passes between those severed animals, God himself. And so as we prepare to come to the table this morning, I hope that we're reminded that God gives us Grace and in giving us grace is able to accomplish far more than we could ever achieve or envision or pull off of, pull off in our own efforts. And then God guarantees and secures that grace by binding Himself to His own covenantal obligations. There's a final thing very, very quickly in this text, and that is in this Old Testament scene of the presence of God passing between a place of sacrifice. God anticipates His grace shining even more brightly in a coming day of sacrifice in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In my opinion, the smoking pot and the flaming torch are pre-incarnate references to Christ. I believe that that day it was Christ who passed between those elements of sacrifices. It was the Lord himself passing between there. Because in every Old Testament sacrifice, in every 
Old Testament covenantal obligation. We're anticipating the coming work of the Lord Jesus and God's gracious promises to Abram, a son and a descendants and land. They're all necessary for the unfolding of that plan to give us a savior and a redeemer. And God has secured his promises to you today in a new covenant, promises of a new heart, of intimacy, of fellowship, of acceptance and pardon, of a righteousness that will stand the scrutiny of heaven's court in a coming day of judgment, of seeing and someday sharing in the glory of Christ himself, of inheriting all that Christ has secured for us. God has guaranteed that to you today. And would you doubt it? Would you doubt that you're forgiven? May this table remind you of God's promise. Would you doubt whether or not God will treat you as though you're righteous as his son? May this table remind you of those promises. Would you doubt that you will someday see and share in Christ's glory? May the broken bread and the taste of the cup today remind you that all of God's promises to you are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Father, as we bow in prayer this morning and prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord, would you make these simple elements a source of spiritual nourishment and refreshment to the good of our souls? Would you remind us afresh in these elements that all of your promises to us in Christ are secured and guaranteed by his blood. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.